Good to see you all on this lovely sunny morning. Um, shall we pray together? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this lovely morning once again and for, for the work of your Holy Spirit. And um, yeah, thank you that you are our Savior individually, but also corporately as a, as, as a nation, as a group here. You want to bless us, to bless uh, Greater London and bless Sutton, bless people who are here, and also that they can spill us over, that we can bless others. And that we all understand what we are trying actually to present, that you are our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you are to come. You are the one who gives eternal life, and we are already living by believing in you. We are living this eternal life already. In your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I would like us to open the uh, Gospel of John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and we are going to continue further from um, what Steve and, um, and Pete, respectively, had spoken over the last couple of Sundays. We're going to read from John, chapter 1, verse 35 through to 51. So, John, chapter 1, 35 through to 51. I'm going to read from a from New Jerusalem Bible, slightly quirky, but very good translation, and I think you'll be able to follow. The theme for this Sunday is Jesus Christ, the one who calls. Jesus Christ, the one who calls. The next day, as John, John the Baptist, stood there again with two of his disciples, Jesus went past, and John looked, looked towards him and said, Look, there is the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned around, saw them following and said, What do you want? They answered, Rabbi, which means teacher, where do you live? He replied, Come and see. So they went and saw where he lived and stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of these two who became followers of Jesus after hearing what John had said was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother and say to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And he took Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Kephas, which means a rock. The next day, after Jesus had decided to leave for Galilee, he met Philip and said, Follow me. <clears throat> Philip came from the same town, Bethsaida, as Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, From Nazareth? Can anything good come from that place? Philip replied, Come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming, he said of him, There truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deception. Nathanael asked, How do you know me? Jesus replied, Before Philip came to call you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus replied, replied You believe that just because I said, I saw you under the fig tree. You are going to see greater things than that. And then he added, In all truth, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending 
and descending over the Son of Man. Amen. Before that, I want to read something, and I know it's very rude, but there is a story behind that. It's an article in Telegraph a few days ago. <clears throat> in the wake of Nadia Hussain, the great, great British Bake Off, some of you may have watched, I love it. <laughs> Meanwhile, <clears throat> Bake Off has Bake of fever has prompted a huge spike in the sale of baking ingredients. Waitress reported an increase of 33% in sales of their home baking salted caramel flavoring compared to this time last year. After Nadia's signature peanut salted caramel and chocolate tart was a major hit in week nine. Ocado has also seen a rise in sales of the Tala measuring cup by 500% along with sales of ramekin dishes increasing by 300% after the creme brulee challenge in week four. The reason why I'm mentioning is I love food, but it's not more about it. It's, it's one of the examples, actually two. First, I'm using this, a smartphone, something unusual for maybe 10, 15 years ago. And also what we read now together is that we are following certain things in front of us. And particularly with regard to uh, the Great British Bake Off, if you watch, watch on Friday, I'm not paid for by the BBC at all. If you watch Great British Bake Off, an extra slice on Friday, after 9 o'clock, of course, um, you'll see that those commentators or those professionals, Jack Michel Rue Jr. or some other, they're talking about how sumptuous cake was or something. How on earth can you know that? I mean, you judge only on the base what you can see and on the base what Paul and Mary would tell you about. And yes, we respect them because we try their recipes, but their test taste buds are completely different to ours and do not have to be equal or similar to ours. And yet we tend, I first, I myself, Lada, I tend to follow this and think, wow, if I could only try that, uh, uh, that Nadia's cake or this or that, it would be fantastic. We are used to follow certain things in front of us, maybe because society is following, maybe we find it interesting, and yet we are not even able to taste. We can't put our hands through the TV, at least not at this moment in time, in order to taste for ourselves and ourselves to make a conclusion and to say, yes, I have tasted. The question is, why? Why is difficult than to follow Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he is not, uh, well, I don't know whether he was a baker or not. We know from, uh, from reports in, in, in the gospel that he was a carpenter. He was good at that. And yet, we find sometimes difficult to go and follow this. I try to, pre uh, to present this whole presentation today in three parts. And for this, I'm using something called theomatics. Theomatics. It's a term developed by... Um, <clears throat> aspiring, quirky, young theologian called Vladarakin. And that means it's a combination between theology and mathematics. So the numbers are not necessarily deliberately put into it, and yet if you add two elements together, they will equal to something. They will become a conclusion, a result of it. We will start with the first part, and this is the calling, calling the one who calls. So in our first part, as we read here uh, about uh, John the Baptist and disciples, we are going to see, come and see, as one of the first major calls, 
Come and see, and obviously the plus is there. Come and see. We see John the Baptist, again, he's early in the morning. Uh, he's there, he points, oh, there is the Lamb of God. And those two disciples, still, still unnamed, they suddenly turn around and go following Jesus. And yes, it, it looks a little bit rude. I mean, they spend time with John. They could have said, thank you for your time. Thank you for helping us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for being patient with us. They just leave John. But that was exactly what John wanted, wanted them to do. He was, as Pete pointed out, uh, John the Baptist, a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between an old world and a completely new development. They go, follow Jesus, and Jesus, he, he knew. He turned around and, what do you want? It's interesting, it could be seen as rebuking in some sense, and really kind of questioning, but actually it's a very good question. He in some ways wants to help them understand, they themselves, what do you really want in your life? Not just what do you want in this particular moment in time, but what do you want? Sometimes we, myself, I, our fellow citizens, we are surrounded or presented with the news stories about Lord Jesus Christ, about the Bible, Sometimes about Christianity in general or the representatives of the biblical Christianity, whether being good or bad, abusive, doing some good charitable work, different things. But people do not want to make a commitment. Jesus asked them, it is not necessary enough just to follow me. You have to see, understand and decide for yourself what do you want. The first thing they say, uh, Rabbi. And the second, uh, where do you live? Now, of all questions, I could have asked Jesus, it would probably be something else, or who you are, are you really the answer to the Old Testament prophecies? And yet, they start with Rabbi, and then where do you live? Now, Rabbi, I presented here as well, means literally my master, but colloquially, in general terms, is used as my teacher. A title of respect signifying master, teacher given by the Jews to their doctors of the law and their distinguished teachers, and often addressed to our Lord Jesus Christ. Another form of the title was Rabboni in John 20, 16, and there's different variations of the level. Rabbi means a teacher. Now, one of the big questions that the commentators in the last centuries or more than that were asking is, how did they those disciples, at such an early stage as recorded in the Gospel of John, it was only a short period between Jesus appearing, being baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, tempted in the desert, and suddenly he comes here. Were those disciples able to hear him speak? How did they conclude that he was a rabbi? Theoretically, that could have been they could have been in Jerusalem in temple when Jesus was 12-year-old, theoretically, but there is no proof of it, to hear when Jesus, as a young boy, was discussing, discussing the scriptures with the, with the rabbis and the other teachers at the time, and yet they are calling him rabbi. It also shows that sometimes, if we choose to go this way and to seek the truth, to seek the biblical truth, we are going to receive some 
revelations, some thoughts, some extraordinary thoughts we don't understand yet. And we, we may say things, we sometimes, I myself, you are my Lord, or I sing this, you, you, you died for me, I am sacrificed myself for you, I want to follow you, but do I really mean it? And yet, I do say certain things that will come to be more clear to me in a time to come. Don't be afraid if certain thoughts about your development in terms of reading the Bible, following Jesus, are still unknown to you. If you follow the Bible, pray, seek our Lord Jesus Christ, things are going to become clear to you. We may not understand everything in our lives, and yet we will understand step by step. Things are going to be revealed more and more. They go, Jesus invites them and says, come and see. They stay with the Jesus that, and report is here, it was a tenth hour. Um, there were various discussions about the, the, this thing. It won't decide your salvation at all, whether it was Roman legal time from midnight onwards, so it would be 10 a.m., or Jewish time from sunrise to sunset, 4 p.m., whatever it was, they stayed with him. But what we see is a complete change the next day. It seems that being, sojourning, or spending time with Lord Jesus Christ made an impact on those two disciples, at least on one of them, Andrew, that he was so full of excitement, he ran first thing next day to found his brother Peter. Now, it is a little bit unfortunate, we would say, that he is referred to Andrew as the brother of Simon Peter. It's a little bit unfair because he is the one who finds Peter, and yet he is associated as being brother of Peter, meaning he is devalued so that his brother will come up. It's one of the ways that suggests for us that this gospel was written well beyond the time of the first disciples. At the time, 90 AD or 90, uh, year 90 in the first century after Christ, a uh, few more years afterwards, roughly, when Peter was not only known as Peter, he was the first bishop of Rome, the first pontiff or the first pope, as uh, is usually believed to. So Peter was usually seen as somebody who is the figure. And therefore the author tries to make connection to somebody who is the person, Andrew, although Andrew is one who should be credited, one who came to found, find Jesus, but for, what, for, to find Peter. First thing that he says, of that excitement, we have found the Messiah. And this is where the problem starts. The Messiah, we'll see in the, in, in the next slide, is um, Hebrew Mashiach, or Greek Christos, means anointed. Um, I hope we'll get a... It'll come at some point. Okay, I'll read anyway. Messiah, priests, prophets, and kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil, and so they were consecrated to their respective offices. The great Messiah is anointed above his fellows, as Psalmist says in 45.7. He embraces in himself all the three offices. We know the word Messiah from its Greek version, Christos. Why is this so challenging? I don't still know. And I can't put my finger down and say, yes, that Andrew at that moment I completely understood 
what the mean, what the word Messiah means, and particularly what Messiah is going to do. Now, Messiah was anointed, and for those who do not know much about the Bible in the Old Testament that describes that, uh, the period in the Palestine where the Jews lived, their life from the beginning of the creation, three groups of, or in the society, priests, prophets, and kings were anointed. In this particular sense, it would refer to a king, but it has to be an anointed one, a chosen one, not just any king, a king who would come from heaven, a king who would come to liberate the Jews from their oppressors. It comes in the line with liberation theology in Latin America, when it was preached in the 60s, that Jesus Christ came to liberate us, not only from the sin, but from physical oppressions of the regimes we live in. And therefore, it is important to understand that the word, as we read, has a power. The word about Jesus sets people free, but also kind of tickles them to go and do something, inspires them to go and do and have a social action. The Jews were expecting to, for a Messiah to come. There was a long period, in some ways, of slavery. In 722 before Christ, the Assyrian Empire arrives, biggest emperor at the time, takes people from Samaria, one of the parts of the modern-day Israel or the region of Judea in biblical time, takes them away. 586, Babylonian Empire comes, takes another portion from the, uh, from the uh, Galilee and also from Judea. From that period onwards, onwards, the Jews are no longer homogenous, no longer one unified nation. And what occupying powers always do, if you rule over a large territory and you want to prevent any insurrection, you just resettle people from that area to completely different side of the empire. And you do the same by bringing other people and other cultures in their place. And therefore you mix them and you, you factic, in, in fact you prevent them from becoming and able to oppose to that empire in a, in, in a, very, uh, in very, clear, uh, in a very clear way. They were expecting the Messiah to come. Suddenly we have somebody who is called now, although from these scriptures it's still unclear how much they understood, yet there was something in their mind that prompted Philip. After spending that night with Lord Jesus Christ, whatever there was a talk, uh, sorry, Andrew, whatever there was a talk between Andrew and Lord Jesus Christ, something made Andrew believe that that was Messiah there. Messiah was supposed to come as a king. Problem was, Judea at the time, Palestine had already Roman procurator or equestrian governor Pontius Pilate. He was sort of a knight in Roman time. He received Palestine from the Emperor Tiberius in order, as, a, as a token of his good service, but also possibility to progress further. So he wanted to keep that, his reign in the Palestine area or province of Judea as much as possible pleasurable for him, and when it's finished, go back home. You wouldn't go to Judea just to live there if you are a, a, a privileged Roman. On the other hand, there was also some ancestors or successors to Herod the Great, who was the last Jewish king at the time, Herod Antipas, who wanted to be a king, who wanted to be in, in his place. Then you had a strong religious class, the Pharisees, 
high priest Caiaphas and Anna. All those personalities you have to bypass if to come as a Messiah, a king of Israel. Romans accepted other religions. They accepted sometimes places to be ruled, to be ruled by local rulers. But what they will ask you is to sacrifice to your own God, to sacrifice sacrifices that will go and be pleasing for the Roman Empire and also glorify the emperor. But for the Jews, that was impossible. Judaism was a monotheistic religion, monotheos, one God. They would have never accepted it. And therefore, Jesus coming with such a radical message was going counterculturally, going against everything settled there. We will read later in the Gospel of John or in the previous gospel, Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that when he presents himself, religious leaders who just want to have some sort of a peace with the Romans are completely against that. They do not want to accept the Messiah, one who is anointed, one who is to come. In this case, <clears throat> Jesus, when he meets... Um, <clears throat> When he, sees, uh, when he sees Peter, he addresses, uh, he addresses the Peter. He talks him about his second name. And you can see how development starts to happen in the life of those, two, uh, of those first disciples. So we have a situation when Jesus says, come and see. And we come to our next stage. And that's, follow me. We read in, in the next stage, out of Norway, Jesus goes to Galilee. On the way, he meets Philip and says, follow me. Philip is so excited, he can't stand, he can't stand and, and not share this. He goes, to, he goes further to Nathaniel, another fellow, and says, we have found one of whom the Moses and the prophets were writing. We suggest that Philip was also one of those who seek, who try to understand the Old Testament scriptures, and to see, is something going to happen? Are we going to be free one day? Is it going to be a change in our life that a Messiah will come and help us? We have found one of whom the Old Testament, or the, the prophets, and the Moses have written. And I've given some examples. Jesus was descendant of Abraham. And if you read in Genesis 12, 3, Genesis, Genesis 12, 3, we read at the beginning of the Bible, Yahweh, or the God, speaks to Abraham, I shall bless those who bless you, and I shall curse those who curse you, and all kings on earth will bless themselves by you, or will be blessed in you, or your offspring. We see immediately that it's fulfilled when reading Matthew 1.1, the whole genealogy starts from Abraham, ends with Lord Jesus Christ. We also read in Isaiah 9.6-7, that Jesus is King David's successor. For a son has been born for us, a son has been given to us, and dominion has been laid on his shoulders. And this is the name he has been given, Wonder Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, to extend his dominion in boundless peace over the throne of David and over his kingdom to make it secure 
and sustain it in fair judgment and integrity. And one more thing. He was born to Virgin Mary. Isaiah also speaks that a young woman, which in Greek refers only to a virgin, will, become, will have a son. Isaiah 7.14, it is fulfilled in Luke 1.26.35. And this brings us to one of the foundational principles of our faith and belief. The teaching or the doctrine of the incarnation. And I've got on the next slide an excerpt about it. Incarnation derives from Latin incarnatio, meaning being flesh or taking flesh. It is a biblical idea, but not a biblical term. Derived from Latin version of John 1.14, which Steve read a few weeks ago, there's a belief that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, or Logos, word, became flesh, human being, by being conceived in the womb of Mary, the Son of God, who is the non-created second hypostasis of the triune God, took on human, human body and nature and became both man and good, God. Hypostasis is used, a technical word, from the Greek philosophers, from Plato, for example, in order to refer to something that is not just a person. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three of them are hypostasis and create the triune God. But why is this important for us? For us to believe what is written in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and fulfilled in the New Testament, we have to accept that our Lord Jesus Christ was 100% human and 100% divine. It is very difficult sometimes when we talk to people who represent or adhere to some other religions to understand. They cannot understand how can a God come down and be represented inside a human being. And therefore we have to understand that it is in some way a mystery. And yet we live on the basis of that mystery, moved by it, moved by God who is creator. In year 325, Emperor Constantine convened a council in a uh, city called Nicaea. It's in northern Turkey nowadays. He wanted to to gather together all the church leaders at the time, kind of ecumenical church council, to bring some articles, some ideas, some major points in the Christian belief, in Christian faith, so that that Christianity can develop equally and can be understood in equal matters. One of the results was the so-called Nicene Creed. And I want to tell you, when the time comes, you find difficult and you find yourself perhaps confused shall I believe and what shall I not believe? Be free to refer to the Nicene Creed. It's believed by evangelical Christian, a majority of mainstream Christian denomination. Denomination. I'm going to read uh, the Nicene Creed taken from the Church of England website. We believe in one God, the Father, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God of God, God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, 
and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered that and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. When they mention Catholic, they don't, they don't think at that point in time about the, the Roman Catholic Church, meaning a church as unified together. Jesus came embodied, embodied in uh, Christ, came embodied in Jesus of Nazareth. It's important to understand. Jesus was a name. There were many Jesus at the, at the time. There are many with the name Jesus even nowadays. But there is only one who is Christos, Christ the Messiah. Only one. And therefore it was necessary in order for the prophecies to be fulfilled that Christ be incarnated in the body of Jesus of Nazareth born in Bethlehem. Difficult something to understand. But it also shows that Jesus through his walk and life on the earth was one who was able to feel more, to, to a particular degree for the people there and now Things that you and I experienced. He cried. He ate with people. He was beaten. He was punished. He was crucified. He loved. He was also angry at times. But he did not sin. He is the perfect lamb. And as John points out at the beginning, he is the fulfillment. It was difficult for the priest at the time, ruling elite at the time, to understand how can a carpenter's son, what did he do? Did he sand down some chair legs when he was out making tables and thinking, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't know what had happened. And it is a mystery. And yet, we believe in him today. And yet, only through Jesus Christ, we can see the living Father. And we can inherit eternal life. Only through Jesus Christ. And interestingly, John, John uh, or the writer of the Gospel of John, it's most likely John, could be some of his friends, emphasized in John chapter 20, 17. Everything is written here so that you can believe. Or even more is written, more about Lord Jesus Christ. And it is, I will read for you here, John 20, 31. These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not just any Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and God, and believing this you may have life through his name. And this is interestingly that Andrew, Peter, John, if that unnamed disciples was John, probably John, Nathaniel, Philip, they may not have understood everything at that moment in time, but there was something in their hearts, somewhere going on inside them that could have prompted them to be, to be so curious or to be able to say, you are rabbi, you are son of God, you are Messiah. And we come to our last section. We started with come and see plus follow me equals you will see. You will see the son of God. 
you will see the Son of God. In this section, Nathaniel discusses first with Philip, and then he's, he's questioning Nazareth. Why can things come good from Nazareth? Jesus from Nazareth. You, somehow they all expected, if, Jesus, if Christ came as Gamaliel, uh, one of the religious, a respected religious leader, or as Nicodemus, who will appear three chapters later, or Caiaphas, or Anna, the high priest, People might have been very happy. Yeah, it makes sense. He's the ruling elite. He could lead. He knows the scriptures. But Jesus, really, he's son of Joseph, the carpenter's son. And it is the irony of John. But, John, uh, but Joseph, Jesus' father, was actually Jesus' legal father. And the Roman Empire would accept that, clearly. He was a legal father. And for the Rome, and in front of the powers at the time, he was fully father, whether he was involved in the conception or not. He was the father. And yet Jesus comes, interacts with Nathaniel. He shows some revelation about Nathaniel's life, similar to what happened uh, in Luke about, with the Zacchaeus, about spirit. And Nathaniel, something happens in him and he Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are, you are the king of Israel. We read in... Uh, in the Gospels, in Matthew eleven twenty seven, in John seventeen, for example, John seventeen three to five, John seventeen, and eternal life is this to know you, the only true God. These are Jesus' words, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me with that glory I had with you before ever the world existed. And some other passages. Christ is the Lord of the King David when Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. Christ is the one to come, John eleven twenty seven, And probably the most interesting for us today, Romans eight thirty nine, Romans 8, 39 and, uh, 38 and 39. For I am certain of this, neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nothing already in existence and nothing still to come, nor any power, nor the heights, nor the depths, nor any created thing, whatever whatever will be or, or come, to come between us and the love of God, knowing to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those first disciples, it was a word to come. And yet they understood some portion, like in a jigsaw puzzle. They understood that there were certain pieces and death, that there, there is Messiah, Christ, Son of God, not only King of Israel, but King of the whole world, Son of God who is there. And they will develop the thought. They will come to their personal, personal deserts, moments when their faith was dry, but they will gloriously rise themselves afterwards when their belief is complete, when they see Jesus on the cross, crucified and later resurrected. When they see that power that comes from the Messiah, everything what they spoke about will be fully revealed for them. And I'm going to finish, finish with an excerpt from one of the early church fathers, St. Augustine, who wrote, What is wrong with us? Uneducated people are rising up and capturing heaven. And we, with our high culture, without any heart, see where we roll in the mud of flesh and blood. Is it because they are ahead of us 
that we are ashamed to follow? Do we feel no shame at making not even an attempt to follow? And soon thereafter, he also writes, There I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage on which my eyes lit. Not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in this in its lust. Romans 13. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if li- as a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. This is a message for somebody who finally began, who decided to follow Jesus. Jesus says, come and see. He invited them, follow me. And as a result, they were able already at that time to see our Lord Jesus Christ. To reach our Lord and to reach completely our destiny with our Lord Jesus Christ to one day be one day be in completely new heaven and new earth. It may be a thorny path, maybe difficult, but we have our Lord Jesus Christ, who is with us, who is welcoming you and I, and who is here to help us understand more of who he is.